Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Australian Politics Live. I'm Catherine Murphy, a political editor of Guardian Australia and also host of the show. This week, we're rolling straight into a conversation with two Liberal MPs, Tim Wilson and Jason Felinski. Both of them are, well, I think you're going to hear, <laughs> you're going to hear over this conversation. Both of them are deeply engaged with the debate about the Australian economy and also about policy reform. They're both tremendously energetic and want to, I suppose, dispel in this conversation the notion that the Morrison government is completely or sort of fundamentally disinterested in in policy. Anyway, we're going to talk about economy, about whether or not we can get past this period of sustained low economic growth and the prospects for, as I say, towards the end, the government being less crap about coming up with ideas in this term of parliament. Listen up. Jason and Tim, thank you for coming in. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Now, we're going to have some mad banter, aren't we, really, over the next... That's never happened with Tim and I in the same room. No, or me. (laughs) Or me ever. No, we are going to have some mad banter about the state of the economy because the two gents in the studio take very close interest in this issue. Tim is head of Parliament's Economics Committee. Chair of the House of Representatives Standing Committee on Economics. Thank you very much. And Jason... What's the acronym for that? Uh... (laughs) Echoes are. Echoes are, but not the treasurer or assistant oh, treasurer. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Very and, deliberately not. And Jason, you're on the tax committee and the backbench economics committee. Yes. I'm the uh, chair of the standing committee of the House of Representatives Tax and Revenue that Committee. Is, that <laughs> is so exalted. It's not funny. Anyway, no, look, uh, I've you invited never want these. To be stuck next to me at a dinner party. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've invited these two in uh, because I very much enjoy their company and because we want to engage in some spectacular nerd banter about the economy. And Jason's going to kick off and I'm going to ask him a really simple question. Are we in a period of secular stagnation? Well, the short answer is probably yes. Let's explain before because yeah, so, before we go full nerd, let's explain what we mean by secular stagnation. So secular in economics means a long period. Secular stagnation was a concept developed in the 1930s when you had the Great Depression starting in 1929. The only thing that actually really broke it was World War II. Um, and there were various reasons for that, which um, I can go into uh, for quite a period of time. <laughs> um, Larry Summers, who used to be the president of the Harvard University and was Bill Clinton's Secretary of the Treasury, wrote an article in 2013 where he said that he felt that we were probably in a period now of secular stagnation. Since then, 
it would appear that globally growth has been difficult and has not mm. accelerated. Yeah. And that when you look at all the major economies, all the levers are pulled to accelerate, whether it be monetary, fiscal, tax policy, etc. And you're not really actually getting the acceleration that you would normally see in economic growth. Well, yeah, it's basically that the sort of rules of the game, it's, let's call it that, are not working in the way that they used to. So then that creates a whole lot of policy implications, doesn't it? And Tim takes up the story as we think about that. Well, that's true, but it's not quite to say that they're not delivering some dividend. There is some dividend. We're still achieving economic growth in Australia, but if you actually want to see a significant improvement in economic growth, we're not in a in the era at the moment we're achieving that or we're going to achieve that easily without some pretty dramatic reforms, it would be particularly around structural reforms. And what we've got now is the Reserve Bank has essentially exhausted most of its monetary policy options, or what we call conventional monetary policy, by cutting interest rates to put more money in people's hip pockets so they can go and spend in the economy and help business then go and invest, etc. And so now it's looking at things like what we call unconventional monetary policy, but particularly socialising the idea of quantitative easing. And if you look at what the markets are doing at the moment, they're pricing in further interest rate cuts as we move towards 0% interest rates. And what happens, uh, and the RBA has already flagged this, is then they look at basically increasing the money supply. Um, and we then enter into a big question about you know, what does it mean for inflationary environment? What does it do for asset prices? What does it do for income inequality? And of course, it's really to keep the economy fluid and keep moving. Well, if we look at Europe, Brian, let's look at Europe for a sec. Central banks engaged in QE, quantitative mm. easing in Europe. But there was a sort of strange dynamic about that because it was a response in a way to austerity in in, in a budgetary setting, right? So, well, 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 no, no, I'd, quite, I'd say it, it was... It was it this, is called, this is called putting a match on them. <laughs> No, a lot of it a lot of it was in response to a lack of access to credit. And that's what the difference is between now and say, for instance, what was done in the global financial crisis. Then there was a problem around access to credit. Today there's so much capital, so much money washing around the globe, desperately trying to find a home for investment and opportunity. And it brings into question whether such a policy option is firstly the, the correct policy response, but then we actually have to consider the consequences. And, you know, I'm somebody who, if you go and look at the World Economic Forum's data, they actually last year published a, a research piece showing that firstly, of the $3.6 trillion that was released by the United States through quantitative easing, there was only $2.9 trillion in terms of growth associated with that. So essentially, you're printing money and actually not getting the outcome. You want more of an improvement. But in addition to that, there's big questions, and I have big questions about increasing income inequality, and also about keeping, you know, things like what we call asset prices. But you know, for most average Aussies, that means higher house prices and keeping prices high, and that's ultimately locks young people out of the property market. Is actually a wealth transfer from the young, or at least from those without assets, normally the young, to the established. So, can I give a? I mean, what Tim says is absolutely correct, but. Um, if I can give a microcosm of that, is if you move into quantitative easing or monetary policy being loosened, what most Australians do with that, especially if they don't own their own home, is say, great, I'm going to go and buy my own home. The issue that you have, 
and this is the big issue, which is what Philip Lowe's actually saying, but people are ignoring, is you then need structural reform. Yeah. Yes. So if you have in all of the states and territories planning laws that do not allow the market to respond to increased demand, what happens is, is yep, you get a flow of money into the into the real estate market. We know if supply doesn't increase, but demand does, price goes up and quantity doesn't. So what you actually need to be doing is saying to the states, reform your planning system, release land, allow people to buy affordable housing. Correct. In that instance, what you end up with is monetary policy, driving growth, driving affordable housing, driving the job market. What we have in Australia and large parts of the world is you have markets that can't respond to increased demand. Correct. But, but, but I take this point, I take the point, but Lowe is saying a couple of things, right? Yep. And you guys are correct to point out that for some reason the, the governor keeps saying let's have structural reform and somehow that gets ignored, right? Well, no, he's actually saying he's actually saying quite a few things of which he has preferences. So he's saying we do need we do need an increase in well, fiscal, which we've seen through tax cuts. Yeah. And he's also acknowledged there's capacity constraints or we can't do much in terms of infrastructure. But he's also, as many people, including the two of us have said, is we need structural reform that is part of that. And, and what Lowe has said very clearly is that structural reform is his first preference because yes. that's what we do to increase the number of people who have jobs, increase the opportunity for Australians to get ahead, and particularly because there are big challenges, particularly around the tax system, that we have to confront. No, no, absolutely. I'm being too long-winded, obviously, and, and you've, I mean, you've basically explained the point. But oh. uh, no, but Lowe is, well, two things, though. He's saying structural reform, which let's pile into yeah. in more depth in a sec, right? But he's also saying got to do more on the fiscal side now, infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. Like, he's clearly saying this, guys. He really is saying this. Oh, I don't oh, agree. Well, what do you mean you don't agree? Well, I don't agree. I think – so I initially came out – and I, I, because I'm on the economics committee, I get invited to a lot of his speeches. Yes. It, it started off by saying we're going to do as much as we can on the monetary side, but this is not having the response yes, it used to have. Yes, I don't know, definitely. So we need yep. structural reform and – May I point out, interest rates are really low. There's a lot of capital around. Yeah. If you've got infrastructure projects which you want to, to do, good time to borrow. Chaps. This may be a good time to do it. Yeah, good time to borrow. Um, of course, the media are all focused, Labor focused on, oh, he's saying, stimulus. you know, yeah. stimulus, stimulus, stimulus. Then the next speech was the structural reform went from two paragraphs to four. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Inve- no, no, no. Investment, I'm, I'm... investment in infrastructure stayed at one. The media ignored the four paragraphs. <laughs> Labor ignored the four and stuck on. Well, the media. The last one. Excuse yeah. me. Someone yeah, yeah. wrote a column pointing out that he was talking well, about Well, indeed. Oh, sorry. Form, oh, sorry. Anyway. I, you <laughs> are the exception that no, proves no, no, the rule. No, 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 no. Sorry. This is um, ridiculous, humble. And then, um, and then finally, he got to like speech number five, where he finally added a paragraph after that and said, "Of these two options, my clear preference is, is. No, structural reform." And, and but if but if we can go around the states just really quickly, yeah. where do you want to do this? New South Wales at the moment is holding a lot of money in what is a future fund, which they called NextGen. They're doing that because they recognise that they were getting super or hyperinflation in infrastructure building because they reached the supply constraints of building more infrastructure. Yeah, right. Victoria is in a similar situation. <laughs> Queensland can't borrow any more money because they're at a triple B rating. What does South, you know, South Australia can do a few things, but we're not talking about you know a metro. It's not going to drive the country, and it's not going to drive the country. What do you mean? Well, well of course, it's, it's, uh, 
It's not going to have the value add that Steve we need. Steve Marshall has your mobile number. You're, you're in trouble. I know. I'll, I no, no, it'd be very important for the South Australian economy. I need to stress you. that. For our South Australian listeners, <laughs> I don't need to dis- I just want to point to South Australians. It was Tim Wilson who said that. Yes, yes. But hang on. You know the point I'm making. Yes, I do. No, 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 I do. I do. We're not actually at odds, chaps. But let me just sort of. That's what's scaring us. No, Oh, excuse me. So, but, but, but. Here's the thing, right? Structural reform, I promise we're getting there. But we went through four people listening to this conversation, right, who remember during the global financial crisis, not that we are there, God touch everything, obviously, when we are not there, Mm, that the Liberal Party, when stimulus was required in the economy, had quite a substantial internal debate about how yeah. big that stimulus should be. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, right? Okay. Yeah. So why, for, for people listening here, they may heavily discount what you're saying by thinking to themselves, oh, well, Libs never like stimulus, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, but but, but so, it's because, well, it's partly because there's a legacy effect of which we're still experiencing, yeah, which is sure. particularly from where we were to where we are now, where you obviously went from a position when, you know, we need to go, we don't want to re-prosecute old arguments, but... You know, Labor was elected. The government wasn't didn't have a budget surplus. It actually had savings in the future fund. We went from that to now being in a financial position where we've taken on a huge amount of debt. A lot of those costs were structurally embedded and we didn't confront the challenges that we want to confront, which are things like tax reform, industrial relations reform, and what's actually going to be sustainable to drive growth rather than a one-off hit, which you then, of course, have a hangover, and we're still experiencing that hangover yeah, today. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, no, I understand that, and and that's that's explained, right? It's it's the it's the sort of perpetual putting off of the actual structural reform that kicks off another round of productivity growth may actually unshackle us from. Secular stagnation, stagnation yeah. right? So, no, I get it. Okay, so let's get into it now. So you guys keep saying periodically, a number of you in various forms, oh, it'd be a nice idea if we did, or a nice idea if we did, oh, please, oh, nice idea if we did, oh. And the Prime Minister so far has said, shut up. I don't think that's fair. No, I think I don't it's know, fairly I fair. No. Nah. I think it's reasonably fair. No, nah. I don't think that's fair at all because the Prime Minister mm-hmm. actually wants uh, ideas prosecuted, but you know he wants to be done through the process of government, and that's an entirely reasonable and legitimate thing to do. Well, except and if you, if you, except if you pursue these things through the process of government, nothing happens. No, no. Well, well, we, we, firstly, we're not at that point, but secondly, actually, one of the great challenges of being a member of parliament isn't actually just about prosecuting publicly arguments. You've actually got to get them through government and be effective. And what the government, what the prime minister, I think, overarching has said is, if you want to be effective in prosecuting reform, and both Jason and I do, you work through government build the case and the evidence base, build, bring together the stakeholders. It's all sort of, you know, the traditional policy wheel of things you need to do to actually implement effect reform. And that's where the Prime Minister's focused, and I think rightly so. And I, I think there's enormous scope within this term of Parliament to be able to do, to prosecute reform, particularly if you're able to build the evidence base, and that's what we're seeking to do now. And, and can I say that's a good thing? Um, yeah. You know, it's it's... Because how many times has this parliament passed laws and come up with great ideas, mm. rushed them through, mm. and then gone, oh, is that what that did? <laughs> oh, we're well, really also, sorry. No, no, there's no, another no. point which you also got to get the Senate on board. We can't just, you know, yes, the government can commit to a 
process of reform, but you actually need to get the Senate to vote for it, and that's not going to happen if there isn't a clear evidence base about why it's justified. Okay, all right. Well, riddle me this, Chaps. Riddle. Then. Okay. Lowe says we need structural reform and he says we need to, you know, sort of put a bomb under the economy, basically. I mean, in, in I much, verbaling, much nicer, uh, <laughs> less inflammatory Reserve Bank language, right? Let's, get, let's crack on, Chaps, he's saying. Okay? Yeah. So here we are. Uh, you guys won the election we're back in Canberra. We're in the middle of a parliamentary sitting fortnight where there really isn't much of a policy agenda in evidence. Now, you are saying all the right things. Uh, obviously, one must go as a collective and build the stakeholders and build the evidence base and all those stirring things that I actually believe in. Like, I I do actually believe in. But at the same time, TikTok goes the clock, mm-hmm. right? We will be at Christmas before you know it. We will be in the second year of the Morrison government. Mm -hmm. Then we will be heading into an election cycle. So the sorts of stuff that good chaps like yourselves want to prosecute in the battle of ideas, hmm, how are you going to pony that up in this term and actually get anything done? Um, so what Martin Luther King called the power of the urgency of now, and, <laughs> and, and we and we seriously are at that point. Yes. Um, so we do need to get cracking on. That's quite true. Now that is not to say that we haven't done some good things already, and that but we really do need to get in both big and can I say small things. Leadership is in the detail. We need to get cracking on with getting some of this stuff both on the boat. And, and starting to get it offshore and float it and see what happens. See what happens. Okay, yeah. well, what's the list? What do we do? What do we need to do? <laughs> well, no, they're, they're, well, there's lots of things. We were, you know, the other day only talking to financial institution about what which institutions about what we need to do to increase the access to credit for small businesses so they can invest and employ more people because that's been one of the big challenges uh, that we've faced. I mean, I, I have big, bold, ambitious plans for tax reform but uh, and uh, flattening and broadening out of the base of tax over time, but that needs to be done both building community support and assistance, and that's not going to be done in the life of this parliament. What we're already looking at is what we need to do practically um, around industrial relations reform and making sure that there is at least pathways for Australians to be able to take control of their workplace arrangements and be able, and of course, for businesses to work with workers to increase the number of jobs. And that's and look, I, I think you've got to look at your factor market. So you've got to look at land reform, you've got to look yep. at capital market reforms, and you've got to look at industrial relations reforms. Um, you've also got to look what at- What do we need to do in industrial relations? Do, do what Julia Gillard set out in 2007. Well, no, specifically, what do we specifically, need to do? Specifically, Julia Gillard, I don't have it in front of me, but Julia Gillard said, what I want to do in the Fair Work Act are the following things. I want to give people individual flexible agreements. I want to give companies the capacity to write very simple enterprise bargaining agreements with their with their teams of people so that enterprises can grow together and share in that. I want to make sure that a small business has certainty where if they follow a code of conduct and they need to let someone go, that they have certainty around that rather than what is happening at the moment, which is just lawfare. And, and, you know, by the way, I mean, I ran my own small business. 99% of the time when people don't work out in a small business, it's actually a good thing that you part company. It's not a bad thing. But how do you sell this to workers who feel in the current yep. economy that they have next to no job security and next to no bargaining power? Because um, that is... that is. Well, well, what I would say to those people who feel that way is... That's under the current Fair Work Act. Yes. Let's change it. Let's make it better. Let's get 
Let's make it easier to hire. Let's make it let's make it easier to hire. Let's make it easier for people to design jobs that suit you. Let's make it better for companies so that you can share in the productivity that you provide to the enterprise, which means higher real wages, better jobs, more employment, and more tax revenue for the federal parliament so that we can sustain what is a very generous welfare system, whether it be the NDIS, our health system, our education system, and our welfare system. What about, I don't know, you're going to have to sell me on that, I'm afraid. But, well, um, no, no, let's keep talking about that because no, no, this no. is interesting for us because we, we, we can see it, but why, why are you not sold? Well, because, uh, well, perhaps I'm reflecting uh, my own lived experience yep. in an industry that is in, uh, Being current, disrupted, well, going yeah. through massive disruption. Yes. Yep. We've lost more than 20% of our number across our profession over the last five years. We have highly uncertain business conditions. There is next to no wage growth. You know, legacy journalists, journalists' salaries are an, an, an instinct, instinct or at least highly endangered species. Yes. Yep. You know, and, and we're a unionised sector. But, but this, is, this is under the current arrangements. I mean, the so reality is there are a lot of people. <laughs> there, no. there, but and I, I do understand, like, you know, you, the concern is that if you're in that environment and it's structured, if you move to a more flexible environment, it's going to become worse. But, what, you know, one of the biggest things you talked about there, Catherine, just now is the role of technology. And it's massively disrupting media and has been for a long time. And that's happening and will continue to happen in other sectors as well, which is why the more you create an opportunity for a flexible environment where businesses can go out and take risks and create new jobs, particularly for new economy sectors, which are often much more speculative than the existing, you know, digging stuff up the ground or, you know, growing things that are in a farm that doesn't necessarily have security behind it. You need that flexibility to get people to take a risk to then go on and create the jobs that you want. And the option is because if, if in the picture you just painted there, is right. What it actually presents is a sector where people are losing opportunity and you need to create the, dis- and the new jobs to displace it. And that's the big ab- ambition and objective, what we want to achieve. Mm. It, it also, in that vein of um, new jobs, new labour markets, etc., my eldest uh, works in the tech industry in Seattle mm. and is part of that amazing global labour market. And I think that's you know, there's a major dis- disparity between workers who are in high growth sectors who you know have amazing compensation, have amazing flexibility. The anywhere, somewhere's well, of course, but dying. it's also but there's a there's a broader thing like picking it up out of IR and looking more generally at productivity and the challenges. Ryan, I, I genuinely don't know the answer to this question, but we don't have there's not enough innovation in, in Australia. There's not enough of that culture that my eldest works in in this country. But is that a policy? Is that is that something that happens by policy or is it cultural? It's policy. So and so, okay, well, so I what, would say it's both, but you go. So what do we need? So we need to reorientate the way that we think about things. So we every time we see a problem in this country, our natural response is to say the government needs to fix that. So George Stiglitz, who's a, an economist from the 1960s, 1970s, would say that every piece of regulation starts off protecting consumers and ends up protecting producers. So what we've ended up with in Australia is four banks, two supermarkets, yeah. um, you know, and the, yeah. and the two, two, two major freight companies 
and you know, four television stations, mm, two yes. newspaper chains. This scourge of the duopoly or oligopoly. And that is due to the fact that we keep making barriers to entry. So you don't get innovation, you don't get competition. And what happens is you can't stop the sea from coming in. So what looks like, oh, we can stop that piece of disruptive technology from hurting us, ultimately just builds up and up and up, and then it washes over the entire sector. And what has happened with your son um, and we, was it, sorry, your son or daughter? Yes, son, well, son, son. Yeah. Um, son, and to a lot of other people is that there are this group of people that float above us in a globalised labour market, which can go from one place or the other. Mm. And they, they are not subject to national, national laws, laws no, or tax no, no, rates. Totally or not. All that sort of stuff. Well, uh, until they want to come home from America. Until they want to come <laughs> home from America. And, and look, during the global fund, and, and this is during the GFC, a lot of my friends that I went to uni with had gone into investment banks, had gone and lived in Hong Kong, Singapore, and New York. They lost, They sorry, the company said, we can't keep you here, but we can keep you in Australia. They came back to Australia on, on typically just as much or a little bit more money. They had less money because of tax rates. They Their families complained because they couldn't get you know, people to help out in the, <laughs> in the same way that you could in those other places. And of course, the traffic really sucked. And so, and, and you know, there wasn't the sort of transport links that they had. That's, you but know, so, so they can escape all of that. Mm. But they actually, we, we should want your son to come back to Australia and obviously uh, he worked in the tech sector, I think mm. you said, yeah. but come back and apply that knowledge and skill because it's desirable to come back to Australia and then use that to create business and opportunities here. Now, it's fine to go overseas and learn skills and to be able to take advantage of that, but it's not like it's stagnant where you just get innovation overseas or you get no innovation. The capacity for people to be able to gain those skills and bring them back to Australia because it's an attractive place to live and we are a lifestyle capital and because we have low or competitive tax rates with the rest of the world and, of course, the opportunities where you're able to enjoy the benefits of your hard work is then to go on and provide and create your own businesses that create jobs for others. And that's where we want to be. I mean, if you look at the global backdrop of the challenges that Australia faces, our biggest challenge is to be competitive in the global marketplace. We have high labour costs. We obviously have a very skilled workforce, but some of those challenges, some of the options for exports or to be able to trade into other markets is limited. And we need to expand those opportunities and for people to see more value in being here than Singapore or Seattle. But aren't we, in political terms, we've got to wrap up soon because time's against us, sadly, even though this is really fun. Um, didn't Malcolm Turnbull have a red-hot crack at sort of trying to convey this sentiment to voters in 2016 and the voters said, yeah, I'm a bit scared of that? I don't, I don't, no, because I don't think it's necessarily something that switches people's voting behaviour. It's a thing that responsible governments do over the life of a parliament or over the life of a term of government. It's not necessarily what's going to move people's votes, but if you build a sense of confidence and clear-eyed determination about what we're trying to achieve and why it is and get you know, next generations on and explain and articulate both to their parents as well as themselves about the power of what we can provide for future generations. That's what's going to persuade people because you're right, people are nervous. People do look at the global context. You look at Europe and you look at the challenges there and obviously, and the same in the United States and of course, Asia and um, pretty much everywhere you look, there's a challenge. But what we can do is provide certainty and clarity about how we're going to confront those challenges and go into the future. Okay. And, and I don't think that in the 2016 campaign, we really articulate what we meant by oh, not jobs in, and growth no, and no, innovation. No, 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 that is um, true. But the one yeah. thing I will say is Paul Ryan, who used to be the Speaker of the House, the Republican Speaker of the House in the US, gave a interview to Aspen Ideas about two or three months ago. And he said, when 
the right of politics is at its best is when it is explaining to people hope and opportunity. Correct. Giving them that. And that's what Tim and I have to do. That's what the entire Liberal Party has to do. Well, and you've been pretty crap at it. Thank you for your feedback. (laughs) No, no, but let's be honest. You have. You've been pretty crap at it. Do you think this is the term where you'll be less crap at it? Well, I don't. I don't agree with that characterisation, but uh, but I think uh, you might slightly. Sorry, no, you no. I, I think I think we. I think there are some people who burned from the 2016 campaign. Be, be truthful, but the the trade off in the end is that we've got to reposition and communicate it clearly because the reality is the world is not going to become less competitive. The world is not going to have, uh, or even Australia is not going to be an environment where technology is not going to be more disruptive. It's going to continue to be. And Labor's solution is to build a better yesterday. Our solution has to be build a better tomorrow. And we have to clearly project how we're going to do that. Well, I think that's that was remarkable to get through right to the end before uh, the partisan element intruded <laughs> on the conversation. Well, no, but they build, 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 no, build no, more rigidity no, no, for no, a better no, no, yesterday. No, 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 it wasn't gratuitous. Just one last question before we go. Um, Neither of you have mentioned climate change. One that is, no, that is a really good point. One and we need to and the major disruptions of of decades yeah, going no, forward. You're absolutely if we right. Leave the science. But it's also the space where the technology can play the most profound role to improve the state of the human condition and the environment. And that's why we should look at how we can harness these discussions to actually drive discussion to improve Australia's position. And it's it's not just you know everyone just focuses on well, we'll do you then go on and do things like build more solar panels. There are going to be things we're competitive not at and not like we could be a world leader in things like demand management, which is making this uh, industry more productive, reducing the amount of energy. Again, going back to that competitiveness point, we can do that and we have a capacity to be able to lead the world. But can you do that without blowing up the Liberal Party? Yeah, yes. absolutely. Really? Absolutely. Because in the end, it speaks to the idea of how we become more competitive and being more efficient, which is at the core of everything we believe in and everything about what we want to achieve for the economies to create the maximum number of jobs, the maximum opportunity for the future generations. Um, if I can put it this way, climate debate has become about the darkness and the candle, and it's actually about the light globe, LED, of course. And I'm, and I, <laughs> I like that. And, and I'm actually quite serious about that in yeah. terms of every every time you talk to people in my community about climate change, they're very concerned about it, and I'm concerned yeah, as well. It, we have a coastal community. Yeah, we, yeah. Have, we have a coastal community. We have a lot of beach erosion. Mm. The thing about it is, is that the answer is always solar panels, and I'm not disagreeing with that. But the question is much, much broader than that. Correct. Um, I mean, even down to things like there's a fantastic book out now called The Future of Food and it essentially makes the point that 40% of carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions come from livestock. And in the well, we are doing it now where we are growing meats in these bioengineering pods, where we are growing vegetables in um, multi-storey buildings, yeah, yeah, which yeah. cuts but- down on all sorts of costs and creates carbon sequestration because you don't need as much land, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, all of this is coming down the track. The question is, how do we bring it forward? Right. How do we get the investment to occur? Yep. Because the answer is probably not going to come out of Canberra. It's going to come from millions of people who are willing to put their houses on the line and take a punt on this. Well, that and innovators because – and in the well, end – Well, that's the, what I mean. The, yeah, but yeah. the future is going to be awesome. Well, that's right. You look at it. No, we can't. Well, we we have to end there. Uh, we have oh. to end on that. No, that's too pure. But thank you for reminding us world. to talk about yeah. well, well, we should have we should have brought no, that no, up. No, 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 no. We got there in the end. And anyway, uh, thank you both. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> we look forward to doing it again. Thank you. Next week. <laughs> Bye.
Thank you so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. Production, as always, by Miles Martignoni and by Hannah Izzard. Uh, we'll be back next week. Parliament is continuing to sit. We'll be back with all the raucous goings-on then. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.